Equally interesting were the vivid descriptions of the gunfight and its aftermath in the 1993 Tombstone and 1994's Wyatt Earp. Tombstone cast Kurt Russell as Wyatt and Val Kilmer as Doc, while Wyatt Earp had Kevin Costner and Dennis Quaid in those roles. For those two films, as well as Hour of the Gun and My Darling Clementine, electric performances as Earp and Holiday were given between one and all, yet none seemed to be as powerful as Burt Lancaster and Kurt Douglas, whose virility overshadowed the others. That was from the book The Golden Corral, a roundup of magnificent westerns by Ed Andrichuk. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there, partners. Welcome to the 43rd episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and here, well, we go beyond just movie reviews. We like to go a little beyond love or hate. And you've tuned in to the first Monday of the month, and that means we're going to discuss a film based on a true story. And today we look at the 1957 American Western film, Gunfight at the OK Corral. Now here is the thing. Sometimes I talk about movies that I already know about. Like in the case of last month in which we talked about The Elephant Man. Other times, I don't know a lot. And I use this show as a way to learn. And that's the case of today's show. I mean, I knew enough that when I saw the actual gunfight in the film, that I, well, I tell you what. Let me describe the gunfight as it's shown in the film. Here's the story. Ike Clanton and his gang are dealing in rustling cattle and Wyatt Earp is starting to get in their way. One night, the Clantons kill Wyatt's brother, James, while attempting to ambush Wyatt. The next morning, Virgil, Wyatt, and Morgan, along with Doc Halliday, walk down the street of Tombstone to confront Ike and five of his henchmen, including Johnny Ringo at the OK Corral. As our heroes approach the corral, there's the sudden sound of guns firing. Everybody runs for cover. The good guys returning fire. Wyatt sneaks under a small bridge, runs, jumps, and rolls behind a wall to get in a better position for battle. Doc and Virgil run for better positions also, but Virgil is shot in the leg. He's pulled to safety by Holiday, and then Holiday shoots one of the bad guys. Meanwhile, Wyatt shoots a kerosene lantern hanging on a wagon that the bad guys are hiding behind, lighting the wagon on fire. In a panic, one of the Clanton gang attempts to run away, but is shot in the back by one of his own men because he's a chicken. Another jumps from the burning wagon, screaming due to the fact that he's on fire. Wyatt shoots him dead. His brother, yelling in anger, runs out into the open to go after Wyatt, and Wyatt easily fills him with lead as well. While sneaking around, Holiday gets shot in the arm, but that's nothing to Doc Holiday, and he keeps fighting. Even with an injury, he tells Wyatt, I'll take care of Ringo. 
I should point out that Ringo has had a sordid history with Holiday's girlfriend Kate earlier in the film. Anyway, young Billy Clanton runs from Wyatt and he takes a bullet in the arm. The lawman follows. Meanwhile, Holiday tracks down Ringo. The two men stand a few feet from one another, with only horses tied to a barn separating them. Shooting his gun in the air, Holiday scares the horses so they break free. Ringo runs into the barn, but Holiday appears in a window and shoots him dead, and then shoots him a few more times just to make his point. The young Billy Clanton runs into some sort of a store that is on the ranch for some reason and staggers up some stairs to the second floor. He makes so much noise that Wyatt finds him. He gives Billy a chance to surrender because Wyatt's a good guy and he doesn't want to shoot the young man. But he hesitates and Billy starts to raise his pistol. Luckily, Doc Holliday appears outside and through a window shoots Billy dead. The whole battle lasts almost eight minutes. Our story ends with Wyatt and Doc meeting in a saloon and Wyatt telling Doc he's headed off for California. Where are you heading? California. For there's a woman waiting for him there. He leaves and Doc finds a card game. As Wyatt rides away, Frankie Lane begins to sing. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello, Doc. Hi, Doc. What's the name of this game? So cold, so still. There they lie side by side, the killers that died in the gunfight at OK Corral. OK That's the way the famed gunfight appeared in the 1957 film Gunfight at the OK Corral. And like I said, I don't know much, but I do know that that's not even close. A few things I do know is James Earp, the one who was shot and killed at the beginning of the film, lived till 1926, so he couldn't possibly have been killed. Johnny Ringo wasn't even at the OK Corral when this happened. And the famed shootout should have been called Gunfight in the Alley Next to Fremont Street because that's where it actually took place. The battle was only about a half a minute long and Wyatt couldn't have rode to California when it was over because he stood trial in Tombstone after the killing. Now the gunfight is only like the last little bit of the film. There's, it's a two-hour film and there's a lot more before that that is questionable and Nancy and Gordon Fry will be here a little later to talk about all those things that are factually accurate and, well, all those things that are not so accurate. And trust me, they know a lot more about this stuff than I'll ever know. I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. But you're going to have to wait a few minutes. Anyway, I'm going to give the filmmakers a break here. The reason is, well, what is the truth? You see, much of what's known about Wyatt Earp and the shootout came from a book called Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal by Stuart N. Lake. The book was published in 1931 and apparently was written in collaboration with Wyatt himself. Also heavily involved with the book was Wyatt's third wife, Josephine. One must remember that Wyatt was 80 at the time and he only gave the author the barest of facts, the ones he could remember, 
and Josephine pushed for more of a legend about her husband than the actual truth. She insisted that any of the not-so-flattering facts about her husband not be included, like the fact he owned a gambling saloon that had prostitutes, or he was married twice before. She spent the rest of her life, after Wyatt's death, portraying him as a Western hero. And it's hard to look at the newspapers of the time because the town was split on which side they supported. Some actually thought the Wyatts were the bad guys. And as we'll talk about in a few minutes, the actual newspapers from Tombstone were just being rediscovered a few years before this film was made, so... In fact, the real story starts with Virgil Earp, who was the Marshal of Tombstone. Wyatt was there just to help him out, but for some reason, the papers focused more on Wyatt than Virgil. Now, the basic story is, the real story, and I mean very basic, is that the trouble was brewing between the lawmen, basically the Earps, and the cowboys, the Clantons, Billy Claiborne, and a few others. On Wednesday, October 26th, 1881, a few of the cowboys were in town. Tombstone had a no-firearms policy, so around 3 p.m., Virgil figured to go over and take away their guns. Wyatt and Morgan Earp, along with Doc Holliday, went along for support. On Fremont Street, they approached five cowboys. Ike and Billy Clanton, Tom and Frank McClory, and Billy Claiborne. The nine men were only about six to ten feet apart, and no one really expected a gunfight, and to this day, I don't think anyone's sure how it started, but suddenly there were shots. Who shot first? Your guess is as good as mine. The whole battle was over in like 30 seconds, with about 30 shots being fired. Ike Clanton and Billy Claiborne ran away. Tom and Frank McClory and Billy Clanton were killed. Morgan, Virgil, and Holiday were hit, but not seriously, and not wounded at all was Wyatt. There were three deaths in total, not six like in the film. The real interesting story was the trial afterwards, the Cowboys' Revenge, and Earp's Vendetta Ride, but that wasn't part of the 1957 film. I think the film Tombstone did this very well, though it was highly fictionalized as well, and maybe one day we'll look into that film about its inaccuracies. Now, by the early 20th century, most of the events of the gun battle were forgotten about, and even by 1950, very little was known. The film was based on an article called The Killer by George Scullin in the August 1954 issue of Holiday Magazine. I looked and looked and looked to find a copy of this article, but couldn't find it anywhere. But I did read it was basically the story of the relationship between Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp. I came across a newspaper article from the Arizona Star from 1954 that read, Douglas Martin, head of the University of Arizona's journalism department, gets special mention in an article in the August issue of Holiday Magazine on the famed man of the West, Doc Holliday. In The Killer, by George Scullin, Martin and Clayton Smith, editor of the Tombstone Epitaph, are credited with discovering files of the epitaph, which gave eyewitness accounts of the famous Earp Clanton gun battle in Tombstone in which Halliday took part. The files, believed to be destroyed in a fire, were missing for 68 years. My point with this is the details of the Earps in Tombstone 
and what happened that faithful day were just starting to be uncovered at the time this movie was made. Did the filmmakers not know the real story? Maybe the real story wasn't known to anyone at the time. Or maybe they knew the real story but thought it was boring, so they wrote their own story. I can't really say. I have this image of a Paramount executive saying, We read this article and we want to make a film about the gun battle. Where did it take place? Why in an alley off Fremont Street, sir? Forget that! Let's move it to the OK Corral. Now tell me about the action. Well, five men stood on one side, four on the other, guns fired for less than a minute, and when it was all over, three were dead. What? Where's the excitement in that? We'll fix it with some action. We'll give them a gunfight that people will remember. Now, most of the film is the basic story of the on-and-off relationship between Doc and Wyatt. They start off as enemies, but keep bumping into each other, and soon they become friends, working together. Now, Doc has a girlfriend named Kate, who he seems to abuse, and she ends up with Johnny Ringo, one of the bad guys. Wyatt meets a woman named Laura Denbo, a gambling woman who Wyatt arrests because he doesn't go in for ladies playing cards. Miss Denbo's marker is respected for $10,000 anywhere in the West. We all consider her an exception. Not in Dodge City, she isn't. So you're the famous Wyatt Earp. Lawman, judge, and jury. That's right, Miss Gambler. Start with you and we'll have every tramp on the south side over here. Who's the tramp? Shut up and keep out of this, cowboy. You're talking to a lady. It appears the marshal hasn't met a lady before. You're in a saloon playing a man's game. Why should you be treated like a lady? And you ain't no gentleman. But soon they start a relationship. A quick side note, the character of Laura was entirely fictional. In reality, about this time, Wyatt was leaving his second wife, Cecil Ann Maddie Blaylock, and moving in with Josephine Sarah Marcus both of whom were suspected of being prostitutes. Anyway, in Tombstone, problems build between the Earps and the Clantons until it all goes to hell at the OK Corral. Now let's start out with one of the main problems with this film, Burt Lancaster. Now, Burt Lancaster is a wonderful actor, and he has made some great films in his career. And maybe I'm looking through this with a 21st century eye, knowing what Wyatt Earp looked like. But the main problem is... There was no effort to make him look like the legendary lawman. At least he could have worn a fake mustache, right? I think all the Earps had that big mustache. But now to talk about things like this, let's go to the fries. A couple of things. Nancy apologized for it being so long, but that's okay because I know it's going to be interesting. Nancy, never worry about that. And to all of you out there, if the fries contradict anything that I've already said or will say, believe the fries. They know more about it than I do. So take it away, Nancy and Gordon. Okay, thanks, Jeff. And it's time for Nancy and Gordon dish on a historical film. You know, that's what this episode is about. It's about what's wrong with this picture. There's plenty wrong with this movie. First of all, it's kind of long. Way too long. For the quality. Yeah. But um, it's very pretty. Yes, very well shot. The opening shots are beautiful, beautiful cinematography. And then we get into these cowboys riding into the town. And right away, our first Buscadero gun rig. It's like he's got to hold on to it while he's trotting so he doesn't lose his gun. It's like, well, if you had a real gun rig, that wouldn't be a problem. So, Gordon, why don't you explain to the class what a Buscadero rig is, where it came from, and why we hate him? 
Okay. Uh, a normal Western rig in the good old days would have been a belt. Usually it was a money belt, uh, fairly wide, made out of leather. A money belt like you would hide some money inside? Exactly. It? You'd hide oh. coins in. Uh, and it would have cartridge loops sewn on it. Okay, we're all fine there. Uh, but it would be just sort of just like your waist belt. It's not cutting anything special. It's just a belt. And um, the holster would just have a loop and flop over it. Okay, great. So a loop that you would feed the belt through. Correct. Okay. It would be an extra piece of leather that would be sewn over, you know, sewn in the back. And you just you know, run the belt through that. Is that what you would call a Mexican loop? Generally, yeah. The Mexican loop was made out of a big piece of leather with a couple oh. slots in it so you could feed the, the body of the holster. Oh, that's right. The pipes, I guess you would call it, uh, through there, and that formed your loop mm -hmm. in the back. Uh, it was great. A very good system. The Buscadero rig, however, is a, a belt that's cut to fit over the hip, and especially so it would ride low, and then a big old <sighs> slot is cut in the right or left side. So tell me, whoever wore a Buscadero rig in the real world? Tom Mix, but that's 1920s. And that's for the, <laughs> and that's for the movies. That's for the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there may have been somebody did that. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, Tom Three Persons or somebody like that back in the, you know, 1890s it might have been done in sure. the turn of the century. Um, but not in the 1880s. No. Well, actually, there was... Wasn't, wasn't the gunfight in 81? 81, 1881. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one guy, um, Oliver Perry Owens, that was it, Oliver Perry Owens, uh, who was a sheriff in Arizona at the time. And he wore one mostly because he had a 4570 rifle, which was big, huge, long cartridges. And there was no way you're going to get a loop over something that big. Oh, so And right. so he had his holster, it was either sewn to the bottom of the. Of belt. his belt, or there was a big cut a, slot. cut a slot, something like yeah. that. He did that. That's the only photographic evidence of anything of this sort. Wow. So yeah. anyway, that, that's one of my pet peeves in the eighteen in the eighteen in the nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies. TV western. It's a TV western trope. It really for is. Sure. There's this guy named I think his name was Galvo Alba, uh, who was really into the whole uh, you know fast draw mm. sport. Uh, and he developed these whole these holsters and these belts and stuff for Slung all the really low. Yeah, and they even had metal in them so that if you fired the blank off before you cleared leather, uh, it you wouldn't, wouldn't shoot yourself. You wouldn't shoot yourself with it exactly. <laughs> well, uh, and you know, and the obvious problem with these really low slung gun rigs is it's great when you're standing up posing for pictures and looking cool, but if you sit on a horse, your gun's gonna fall out because exactly. it's down on your thigh. Blah, blah, blah. And what's yeah. funny is although there are a couple of references to tie-downs on holsters to keep more or less in place, the first place I have seen them used just as a general rule was in the 1912 holster for the U.S. Cavalry made ah. for the 45 automatic pistol. Right. So like a leg tie-down. Yeah, it was to a keep leg tie-down. Exactly. And that had a big old flap over it over the 
pistol to keep it keep the pistol in yeah and keep mud out yeah so. this movie is a parade of bad gun leather on the on the hero guns on the and hero on the guns. on the on the, uh, the talent on the main cast on like the extras and the right. cowboys and stuff i'm gonna put a screen grab on the facebook page on the cellular page showing there's a scene where doc holiday is leaning on the fence oh no it's not doc it's um uh well, Doc's charlie there too, and- charlie um Bassett, Charlie Bassett, Bassett yeah. leaning on the fence, and Doc. Anyway, and there's he's I've confiscated all the guns from all the cowboys, and they're all draped over the fence. There's some really nice rigs there. There's some good historical gun leather there. But yeah, like, why do they have the the? Well, it's pretty normal. You'll have in a lot of movies you have the background extras with really good costuming. Not in this movie. <laughs> no, not in this one. But some movies you do. And then you have yeah. and, and or and hairdos then, and right. things like that. And, and then, then the principles are just terrible. It's terrible. It's you know it's whatever the fashion was that week in yeah. in, in New York. Oh, it's like Burt Lancaster. I'm not going to go deep into the wardrobe on this film because it's basically all bad. It's all terrible. All terrible. So I, I could go for two hours on how terrible it is. But you know it's like you say even on the principles you've got Burt Lancaster as Wyatt Earp wearing a really beautiful wool shirt. Straight out of the 1950s. It has nothing yeah. to do with the 1880s. It's a, it's that gray shirt with the patch pockets on the front. And it's obviously made out of some buttery, yummy wool. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful, but it buttons all the way down. And, and it's it's just wrong. It's wrong. And, and Doc Holliday in his awful 70s groomsman, horrible tuxedo shirt with the ruffles and the garbage on it. It's interesting. The, the shirt, a plain old shirt that buttons all the way down was called a shirt coat right and that really didn't become popular until the 1930s yeah prior to that it was a pullover just like a t-shirt yeah. except it had a couple buttons yeah all shirts were they only went down so far and they were pullovers yeah there's a lot to complain about in this it's like oh, I, I wrote in my notes it's like every time nancy says nice zipper take a drink and you'll be drunk <laughs> by about 30 minutes in it's the women's stuff all has zippers in it which is completely not found in nature yeah there's there's a lot of weirdness in this I, and it's um it's a beautifully shot movie i love the set decoration and i love set the sets are really good the interiors are really good hotel room looks like a hotel room it has a wash stand it has a chair it has a gas lamp or an oil lamp the the um, clanton's kitchen out on their ranch is gorgeous that looks like a kitchen you could actually cook in there's actually everything you need to prepare a meal you can see right down to the oil cloth on the table and the cruet set sitting in the middle of their farmhouse table it's really nice and then you and then you back off a little bit and look at the wardrobe again and you just throw up your hands but another weird thing about um the hair and makeup in this is all pretty awful it's all pretty 1950s but one really bizarre choice they made was there's nary a mustache to be seen on any of the Earps, which is so weird because... They all had these huge handlebar mustaches. It's not like we don't have photographs of these guys, because we do. Yeah, now... And they had beautiful, huge mustaches. Now, Kirk Douglas wears a mustache, looks good in it, but it's a 1950s mustache yeah. where it's clipped right to the edge of the yeah. mouth. It's and, prissy. Yeah, um... It, you know, it looks like a 1970s cop. And, uh, yeah, these the Earps all had these enormous mustaches. They, they were Serbian, so, you know, the Serbs uh, had always grow big mustaches. They had these big, do. fashionable mustaches. Okay, I'm going to say something really catty here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great John Wayne movie. Yeah. 
it is a John Wayne movie. They just stole some historical names mm-hmm. and a vague, vague nod to history and made a John Wayne movie with it without John Wayne in it. Cause, yeah. Because John Wayne would not work with Burt Lancaster. So they made... That's oh, interesting. Yeah. A little chest butting going on. Uh, John Wayne considered Burt Lancaster a communist and wouldn't work with him. Oh, okay. Where Fair the reality enough. is, who knows, but that's what John Wayne thought. <laughs> so... Yeah, I there's it's just too bad because the art direction on this, the set decoration and the sets were all so well thought out. Whoever did that really did a nice job. And then the rest of this, the writing is not good, like you say. It doesn't bear much much scrutiny. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it doesn't have much to do with the actual events. They kind of tried because they don't start in Tombstone, they start elsewhere. And it's funny when they're in Dodge City and uh, Lancaster is sitting chatting with somebody on a bench. He goes, "Man, that guy looks just like Bat Masterson." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turns out that was supposed to be Bat, Bat Masterson. Yeah, they got a guy who looked, looked just like him with a nice mustache yeah, and like him. Bat Masterson's bowler hat and the whole nine yards. And then a couple moments later, they've got. Erp in the office handling a Buntline special, oh, which it was is that beautiful. super long-barreled Colt revolver. Yeah, it's a standard Colt single-action revolver, but with a 12-inch barrel instead of the, the normal long length was seven and a half inch, the cavalry length, and um, it's 12-inch barrel. Uh, he even puts the the skeleton buttstock on it and flips up the rear sight. So which now it's is a little a, teeny carbine. Wow, this is a real Buntline special. So who was Ned Buntline? Ned Buntline was a um, raconteur and uh, playwright and stuff who made all kinds of claims. Supposedly, according to, I think it was Stuart Edward White, uh, one of the, I guess you call court historians of the turn of the century, claimed that Ned Buntline had taken these special order pistols from Colt and distributed them to famous lawmen in the West. So Bat Masterson got one. Well, who knows? Oh, we don't know. We don't even know if this is re- there was any reality behind this oh, claim. Oh, so it's just folklore at it's, this point. Yeah, this, this, this author, I think it was Stuart Edward White. It might, have been, it might have been some other. Well, it's similar. funny that the armorer on this movie incorporated that in and it's, did a really good a really job. really good job. It's perfect. <laughs> it is one. He'd used a real one, which, of course, mythology claims that's what he had. Hmm. Um, now, if they did actually get sent out to guys they probably first thing they did is whack the barrel down to some normal length you can't pack a revolver with a barrel that long it's ridiculous no now put it in a shoulder holster <laughs> yeah exactly well and that's probably what i they got had it but i can't draw it yeah. yeah and um you know they're neat they're very neat uh, but they they were designed to be a sort of a pocket carbine um anyway the whole mythology behind it is probably completely fictitious now, speaking of mythology, did Wyatt Earp really save Doc Holliday from an ambush? Or... That is my understanding, okay. is that's why Doc Holliday sort of tagged along with um, Wyatt Earp a lot, because he felt, uh, um, I don't know if he felt a debt of honor or what, but he, um, Wyatt Earp was one of the few people he actually liked and appreciated. Okay. And Doc Holliday, you know, yeah, he was... At best, he was a sociopath, probably a psychopath. Um, most of them were sociopaths by the time they got to that. And, of course, these guys come out of a really, really rugged point in history, right? you know, Civil War, where there was a, a lot of trauma 
caused a lot of young men to be sociopaths and psychopaths. Now that took, they have that take place in Dodge City. Is that where you think that really happened? Yes, that is my understanding. And speaking of Dodge City, in this movie, they make it look like this little tiny cow town and Dodge City by the 80s was a pretty going concern, I thought. Oh, it was, but of course this was supposed to take place in the 70s. Okay, When it was still, they were still trying to take away business from Abilene Oh. And various other places on the railroad. Yeah, it's so funny. When we finally get to Tombstone, they make it look like a megalopolis. And yeah. it's like, mm, I've been to Tombstone. <laughs> yeah. And it, also, they try to make it look like it used to be a Mexican town, but it never With all was. those adobe huts on the outskirts. Yeah. Now they get some yeah. right stuff right. Like it was, you know, the Schlieffen House or whatever it was. Schifflin. Um, no, Schifflin. Schifflin House. Because Ed Schifflin was the prospector who found the, who found the gold there he found the gold oh. vein and but he was told if he went down there in apache country he, all he was going to find was his tombstone so that's how the town got its name so he found the gold so he called it tombstone. speaking of apache country at one point Earp, wyatt Earp goes out to the clanton ranch and he's i'm not armed and this piece of paper is all i need and he doesn't go armed for a lot of the movie. They really make him out to be a Boy Scout, which oh, he never God. really he no, wasn't. He was, not. he was he was a little shady than she that. But anyway, so he's gonna ride out of town without any kind of sidearm. And why don't you explain to us why that was a kind of a bad idea back then? Well, because although the Apaches of that of southern Arizona were more or less put on reservations, they the Apaches didn't see any good reason to stay there all the time. And they were more than happy to to go off the reservation. That's There's a reason that term exists. And um, marauding, and if they found a single white guy with a couple of nice horses and wasn't armed, phew, well, I guess God has provided for us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they would relieve him of his horses and his life. That's one thing that was brought out very heavily in Hell Dorado, which was Billy, Billy Breckenridge's book mm. about his experience. He was Tombstone's deputy. He brought out the fact that everybody went armed to the teeth when they went out of town because there was still a strong possibility of running into these um, renegade, I guess you'd call them Apaches, or other shady characters. So anyway, it was, it was a, a fairly rough and tumble. I mean, definitely a, yeah. no, no place for old men, yes. And one thing that's always funny in these movies is they have a lot of old guys. Oh, yeah. The West was not filled with old men. The West was filled with young men. Because old guys were like, why would I want to risk my life and my family's life by going out here? I'm already here and stable. Yeah, you look at the the saloon scenes in this film, especially in the first half of the film, and it's all like guys over 40, which is old men. Or over 50 (laughs) or over 60. Yeah. It's like, this doesn't know. No, 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 no. And they wouldn't be hanging out in saloons anyway. No. Um, Ma with her uh, rolling pin would suggest yeah. otherwise. Yeah, she would change their mind about that pretty quick. Two of my hobby horses are alive and well in this film. One of them is tying horses to hitching rails by, by the, the reins. That's why you have a halter on and a lead rope you tie by the lead. But right. I think that these film directors think that looks too cluttery on the horse's yeah. head. And they're like, yeah, hey, get rid of that lead rope. And, and, and it's just bad because... It could go very poorly for the horse if they pull back or yank their head. Well, in fact, um, it's my understanding that the Mongol horde, it was a death sentence if you even led your horse by the reins. Wow. Well, they prized those horses. Yes, because if he pulls back, you're going to hurt his mouth. 
Mm-hmm. You know, maybe even you tear it. Ruin a good horse. You don't do that. So, yeah, no, you don't tie the horse up. So don't do that at home or anywhere else. My other pet peeve is, I only see it once in this movie, but people lighting oil lamps with an untrimmed wick, so you've got this janky-looking flame, and then they don't notch it back down. So you, all you've got is smoke pouring out of the top of the chimney. I hate that. That is not how you light a lamp. And of you course, light we... it and turn it down until it almost goes out, and you keep turning it down, and then the flame comes back up nice and clean with no yeah. smoke. So we actually discussed this very thing at a point where Burt Lancaster lights a... Uh, a hurricane a lantern. A hurricane lantern. For no apparent le- reason. Yeah, it's right in that wagon that's at the entrance to the OK Corral at the gate. Like, why is he lighting Why is he lighting that's that? Dumb, and he walks away. And then well. apparently he leaves it lit, and it stays lit and doesn't burn up all the oil until the next morning so they can have a scene where it sets the wagon Yeah, their Chekhov's gun right yeah, there. Yeah, Chekhov's oil lamp. There's a lot of those in this, yeah. actually. Oh, the other funny thing, speaking of the corral there, is when... It's earlier. It's I think is this in Dodge City? I think when um, Shanghai Pierce comes into town with his vast herd of cattle, and it's like thirty thirty head of cattle, <laughs> and we're like, "Are you kidding me? That is like your backyard flock. That is nothing. Yeah. Cattle drive for that many, that oh, few? Yeah, yeah. No, no. no they should have. It should have been as far as the eye could see. Oh yeah. Exactly, and that was the thing, you know, the cattle drives from Texas, there were thousands of head of cattle yeah. coming up. And they wouldn't bring them into town. They'd bring them to the stock yard outside of town because you can't run a 1,000 head of cattle through No, town. you don't do that. You don't do that. <laughs> so speaking of cattle, one of the uh, reasons d'etre or whatever mm-hmm. uh, for the feud between the Earps and the Clantons. Oh, my goodness. Is it? The Earps, or pardon me, the Clantons are stealing cattle from Mexico, or you know they're rustling. Cattle. <laughs> to which I'd say, and your point. And your point, you know, <laughs> a nobody cared uh, because that was standard business practice on both sides of the border. But the Clantons were actually they were involved in cattle rustling, but not from Mexico, yeah. <laughs> from pretty much, pretty much anywhere else. Um, in fact, if it's fun if you watch Lonesome Dove. Which has got to be one of the great cowboy films, It's even though it's a miniseries, ever done. For getting their cattle, what do they do? They go to Mexico and steal them. But that was, that was standard practice. The reality is a whole lot weirder. <laughs> Needless to say, by the time we were an hour and 20 minutes into this, the story had gone so far off the rails. It's like, where's Josie? Where's Josephine, who later becomes Josephine Earp? Yeah. They put in this fake woman, the, the um, gambling woman, who not found in history. Yeah. I mean, she's lovely, but where's Josephine Earp? They did get some stuff right. Yeah, they got, well, the Shifflin, the yes, Shifflin, what is it, true. hotel or whatever it was. Then um, as someone's writing through Tombstone, you see the Tombstone Epitaph. That was the name that of the newspaper. Yeah, John still Clum. The name of, it's still the name yeah. of the newspaper in Tombstone. And John Clum was the editor. Uh, in fact, he was, John Clum was actually instrumental in getting some a, lot, a number of Apaches to surrender. Oh, good. Come in and surrender because he was trusted by pretty much everybody. Oh, we did also notice that's too. Unusual, I'm sorry, that's dur- unusual for a newspaper. Man. Yeah, during the gunfight, which goes on way longer than the real gunfight was, it was about 16 seconds or something. <laughs> oh they actually have the photo studio yeah. that, that is yeah, right next flies, to the fry. Studio. Is it fly? fly? Oh, it's fly. fly. That's right, not fry. It's fly. Yeah, they um, they have. It's not as fancy as the one in the movie, but that's okay. 
Now, they did have Eddie Foy. Yes, there was a, a, a playbill for Eddie Foy playing at the Alhambra or whatever. And he, he really did play at the, a lot of these little towns. Yep. In fact, he had a great, Eddie Foy had a great story of he's in a hotel that had, you know, really thin walls because that's what they had in those days. They were just, you know, at best a board. Usually it was just the interior walls were just canvas. There was a gunfight going on outside and a bullet went not only through the outer walls but through the inner walls and through his brand new suit and <gasps> left a burning hole <laughs> Whoa. in his suit. He also mentioned that there was a, he was in a saloon when there was a gunfight that broke out and there were all these old, you know, guys like Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp and, you know, the big names and they weren't involved but they all hit the deck. They yeah. all kicked out their chairs and got on the floor. Yes, in this movie, the scene where Doc Holliday is playing with somebody, he's playing poker, and the the uh, the big the herd of cowboys, which is bigger than the herd of cows, comes in and is shooting up the town, and they just sit up at the table. Yeah, I call no way on that. Yeah, no. In fact, I think Doc Holliday may have, may have been one of the the guys playing at the card game that Eddie Foy witnessed. He said all, all of them just immediately hit the deck. And I, oh, this is probably a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so we got on the floor, too. Let's not be a target. So they got a lot wrong in this, especially the story. The writing in this movie is not great. The set decoration, the props, they got so much wrong. It's like Doc's girlfriend throughout most of the movie, Kate, what's her name? Or she was referred to as Big Nose Kate. Kate. For yes. a reason. Yes. And the gal in this movie has a dainty little tiny nose. Yes. So that doesn't make any sense. Big Nose Kate Fisher. Big Nose Kate never took up with Johnny Ringo. No, never, never, never. And Johnny Ringo was not killed at the gunfight at Kate Corral. So one of the interesting things is also, not only was Johnny Ringo not killed at the shootout, but neither was Ike Clanton. And Ike Clanton was the one that ran through, uh, through Fly's studio. Oh. Billy Clanton was killed right off the bat. Now, they have Billy Clanton in Fly's studio having trouble cocking his revolver, which is the reality. He was having, after he was shot, he was trying to cock his revolver and ask for more cartridges before he expired. Oh. But he was one of the first ones shot by Doc Holliday with a shotgun. And at close range, you're generally not survived. Yeah, this movie uh, makes the movie Tombstone with Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer look like a straight docudrama absolutely. by comparison. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. also the movie White Earp, which I also really, really like, uh, the Kevin Costner one with Dennis Quaid as Doc Holliday, which is very good, too. I also want to point out that Doc Holliday was not a blonde like <laughs> like Kurt Douglas. Or uh, Val Kilmer. Or Yeah. Admittedly, all the photographic evidence we have is black and white. But still, uh, big old dark mustaches. Yeah, that suggests they had probably darkish hair. Anyway, there we go. That's our little nitpicks for this movie. We got um, plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I wouldn't take inspiration from this for just about anything except for the Clinton's kitchen, which was awesome. And, well, uh, if you're if you're decorating a hotel room for the eighteen yeah. seventies oh, yeah. or eighties, a lot something. of nice touches. Anyway, back to you, Jeff. Sure. Play it hard and fast. Listen, Wyatt, the only thing I'm really scared of is dying in bed. I don't want to go little by little. Someday somebody's got to outshoot me and it'll be over with real quick. Thanks, Nancy and Gordon. Very interesting stuff there. Even though you were talking for over 23 minutes, I wasn't bored in the least. You know, Nancy and Gordon uh, used to 
host a podcast called The History Files, and some of us wish they would go back to doing that, because I always find what they have to talk about very interesting. Like with this film, they see so many things that I would have never thought about, like the costumes, the gun holsters, the guns, the set decorations, the hairstyles, all the things that the average person, like myself, wouldn't see. Though I did laugh pretty hard when you mentioned Chekhov's lantern. You know, I didn't even notice that he had lit that lantern earlier in the film. Pretty weird. But that's what kills me. They knew this was based on an actual event, but they didn't bother looking into it at all. I agree with Gordon that they were just really trying to make a John Wayne movie. Anyway, you know, this wasn't the first film that dramatized the famous gunfight. It was presented three times before. The first was Law and Order from 1932 with Walter Houston. He plays the character named Fame Johnson, who's based on Wyatt. And it ends up with a gunfight at the OK Corral, though it's more like in the streets of the town that doesn't even look like a ranch. In 1942, there was the film Tombstone, The Town Too Tough to Die, starring Richard Dix, who plays Wyatt Earp. I couldn't find this, and I've never seen it before. And then in 1946, there was the John Ford film My Darling Clementine, in which Henry Fonda gets the role. Now, both Law and & Order and My Darling Clementine are more fictional than this film. But at least Henry Fonda had, well, a mustache. Okay, it's not a Earp mustache, but it's a mustache. Oddly, in that film, James Earp was killed in the first 15 minutes. Again, I have to point out that James Earp lived to 84 years old, even though he seems to be getting killed in these movies. Dr. John Henry Doc Holliday is played by Victor Mature, but he's a surgeon, not a dentist, and he's forced to operate on his own girlfriend. And he dies at the OK Corral. So anyway, nobody was getting it right. Now, interestingly, the real Wyatt Earp spent his later days hanging around Hollywood trying to get someone to listen to his stories. According to John Ford, when he was a prop boy in the early days of the silent films, he became friends with Earp, and Earp told him the story of the OK Corral. Ford said, I used to give him a chair and a cup of coffee. He told me about the fight at the OK Corral. So in My Darling Clementine, we did it exactly the way it had been. Well, I don't really think so. But you figure a 70- or 80-year-old man told Ford what he remembered. Then Ford, 15 years later, did a film based on what he remembered, an elderly man telling him what he remembered. But I'd say the actual story in My Darling Clementine is even more far-fetched than Gunfight at the OK Corral, but the actual battle, at least it's quick. So anyway. Back to the 1957 film. Let's talk about the cast a little. Of course, we have Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, and not much really needs to be said about those two. Matter of fact, I wish someone would write you fellas a new speech. I've had the same one in the last five towns. All right, you'll stay in your hotel room then till day after tomorrow. I'll personally escort you to the westbound train. Wyatt, we've got to face a hard fact. I'm in a state of complete financial collapse. I don't even have the price of a ticket. Lancaster plays Wyatt as an upstanding, self-righteous do-gooder who's always on the right side of the law. As Gordon pointed out earlier, that wasn't really the case. Kurt Douglas is Doc, the gambling ex-dentist with tuberculosis, and he does a pretty good job of playing the part, coughing and not afraid to play Holiday as dark and abusive. 
I mean, in the first few minutes, we see him mistreating Kate. Don't you ever mention my family again. Ah, please. Then there's this ridiculous scene, which again Gordon and Nancy mentioned, in which he's playing cards, blackjack I believe, with just him and the dealer. Bullets are flying in from the street, and the dealer's scared and wants to leave, but Holiday is on a roll, so despite the lead just missing them both, he makes the dealer keep going. Let's quit. I want to get out of here. Just keep dealing. I'm not breaking this run. Hit me. I assume that was meant for more comic relief. I don't know. And Kurt does some great scenery chewing, which I always find delightful. I read that although Douglas and Lancaster worked together before, it was on this film that they became really good friends and would go on to do a bunch of films together. There's also a scene in which Doc saves Wyatt from an angry mob in a saloon in which they're outnumbered like 25 to 2. It's a pretty ridiculous scene, and apparently Lancaster and Douglas thought the same, and they couldn't stop laughing while trying to get through it, and eventually they had to stop filming for the day. The love interest of Wyatt, Laura Denbo, is played by Rhonda Fleming. Who's the girl? Yeah, who's the girl? Girl what girl? Rhonda lived from 1923 to 2020 and played both on TV and films. She was known as the Queen of Technicolor because she photographed so well. Rhonda really doesn't have a character in the film and is more or less there to give Wyatt someone to be romantic with. I think the relationship between Wyatt and Laura gets a bit sappy here and there and really isn't necessary. And for some reason, I don't see Wyatt Earp being so romantic. You've lost your poker face. You look like a scared little girl. I'm not scared. I'm certainly not a little girl. The small-nosed Joe Van Fleet plays the abused Kate Fisher. Joe lived from 1915 to 1996 and was an American stage, film, and television actress whose career lasted for four decades. Interestingly, she played a character named Kate in East of Eden a couple years earlier and won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. She would go on to be in films like Cool Hand Luke and I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. I thought she did a pretty good job of playing Doc's down-on-her-luck, alcoholic, betraying girlfriend. Let me tell you something, Doc Holliday. All them fancy clothes and that smart talk don't make you no gentleman. You are dirt, just like me. And I'm tired of hearing about that Georgia plantation and all them lily-white friends of yours. They're all gone now. They're all gone. Johnny Ringo was played by John Ireland a Canadian actor who lived in 1914 to 1992. Ireland had a long career before and after O.K. Corral, including films like My Darling Clementine, in which he played Billy Clanton, and he was in Spartacus in 1960. His later years were in B-pictures like Salone Kitty in 1976 and Satan's Cheerleaders in 1977. Ringo really doesn't have much to do here except to give Holiday a reason to be at the final showdown, I guess. Lyle Bedger plays Ike Clanton. Lyle was an American character actor who lived 1915 to 2003 and spent most of his career playing villains. In this film, he plays the villain so well that you feel justified when he gets killed. 
A few actors you might not know are in the film were Dennis Hopper, DeForest Kelly, Barton Milner, Lee Van Cleef, Jack Elam, and Kenneth Tolby. Interestingly, the bartender at the beginning, when Lee Van Cleef is sitting at a table and throws a whiskey bottle, is played by Neil Oliver Russell, who was known as Bing. Bing Russell is the father of Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell would not only go on to play Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, but he also acted with Lee Van Cleef in Escape from New York in 1981. I wonder if on the set of the film, Lee ever told Kurt, Hey, I once threw a bottle at your dad. Bartender! Bartender! Got some decent whiskey around here! The film was from Paramount Pictures, with Hallis B. Wallace producing, Leanne Uris writing the screenplay, and John Sturgis directing. John Sturgis, of course, was a very good director, and that could be why the film looked as good as it did. Now, in Leanne Uris's defense... He had to consolidate a huge story into a shootable Hollywood screenplay, which was quite a challenge, and he wanted to focus on the relationship between Wyatt and Doc. But, of course, the ending gunfight was a pure work of fiction. One has to wonder, how much research did he put into this whole thing? I'm not really sure. I think that John Sturgis was probably only interested in giving the public an entertaining western. Sturgis would go on to make the 1967 film Hour of the Gun starring James Gardner as Wyatt Earp and Jason Robarts as Doc Holliday. And the film is sort of a sequel. It begins with the gunfight, and in that film, the fight is a little more accurate than this film, but still highly fictionalized. Like I said, it's a good Hollywood western, it's just not a history lesson. But now it's time to find out what others thought of the flick. It gets a 65% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is low, actually. David J. gave it four and a half stars out of five, and he wrote, Gunfight at the OK Corral, Western. Favorite variation of Wyatt Earp so far, which has a lot to do with the technoscope and its two leading actors, which are Burt Lancaster as Earp and Kurt Douglas as Doc. Don't remember much about it after seeing this on two or three different times on several different occasions, but I do remember every time feel like watching it, I always had a fulfilling experience. Dave, first of all, I read that exactly how you wrote it, but personally, when I like a film, I remember it. And I don't think Witcher, W-I-C-H apostrophe R-E, is a real word. Chase M gave it the full five stars and simply wrote, My Favorite Western with six exclamation points, so you know Chase means it. And most of the positive reviews were simply things like that, saying, my favorite movie, I loved it, blah, blah, blah. Now some of the negative reviews are like Peter R., who gave it a star and a half and wrote, This movie is bad. It has some problems that need fixing. The movie is a bit too slow at times. There's not enough action scenes in it, and there's a lot of boring scenes going on. The only good thing about this movie is the brief yet slim and short gunfight at the end of the movie. Well, Peter, glad they didn't film the gunfight how it actually happened. You would have really been bummed. Bubba M gave it two stars, and he wrote, Not too big on westerns. I don't get reviews like this one from Bubba. If you don't like westerns, why are you watching this? And then on top of it, why are you reviewing it? If you know you're not going to like it because it's a Western before you watched it, then you're probably not qualified to do a review. 
NGK gave it only one star and wrote, I got bored by this one and stopped paying attention. Ha, kids today with all your TikToks and whatnot. Seriously though, Angie, I, I sort of know what you mean here. The movie is very slow at times, and it takes a long time to get to the, the actual gunfight. The music is by Dimitri Tomkin, and it's, well, your basic score for a 1950s western, I think. He also wrote the music for the theme. Ned Washington wrote the lyrics. And maybe I'm just looking at it through the eyes of a man who grew up in the 60s and 70s, but I just didn't care for the tune. And make their final stand, O King Corral. Oh, my dearest one must die. Lay down my gun or take the chance. And I like Frankie Lane. His version of Jezebel is fantastic, and of course, he also did the theme from Rawhide, which was also written by Tomkin and Washington, and that's a killer. And of course, there's the theme from Blazing Saddles. But this is just sappy and slow, and it fades in at various times throughout the film. And I just, personally, I didn't think it worked. But the members of the Western Riders of America chose this song, Gunfight at the OK Corral, as one of the top 100 Western songs of all time. So what do I know, right? The real Wyatt Earp lived to the age of 80, and he died on January 13, 1929. He spent the later years of his life trying to tell his version of his life, a version that many historians doubt its truthfulness, to who would ever listen. It seems that he really desired to be remembered as a true Western hero and pushed for that image. He spent a lot of time hanging around Hollywood trying to get his story done in films. It is even said that he met a young actor named John Wayne, and Wayne patterned his famous walk after that of Earps. Lock it up. Okay, here we go. And roll sound. B. Nick Rev is making a movie. Action. He's wonderful, isn't he? It's something most of us only dream of doing. How'd you get into cinematography? No, I'm, I'm directing this movie. How'd you get into directing? But for Nick... Hey, Bob! Hey, Bob! Rolling! The dream... Cut! Do I have to do everything myself here? ...is becoming a nightmare. What is your name, anyway? Ah! Living in Oblivion, the new film by Tom DiCillo. You know, the only reason I took a part in this movie is because someone said that you were tight with Quentin Tarantino! All right, I'm going to cut the end a little short because uh, the show went on a little long. Um, next week, I'm going to do one of my favorite films, and that's going to be Living in Oblivion, the Tom DiCello, Steve Buscemi, Catherine Keener movie from 1995. If you've never seen it, it's a very fun film. It's a low-budget movie about the making of a low-budget movie with Steve Buscemi playing the director. Like I said, a lot of fun. Anyway, we have a Facebook page. We'd love for you to join. It's just called Celluloid Days. We have a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. Please join us there. We're up to 41 followers. And I have an email address, daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Email me for any reason. And if you could leave me a review at wherever you stream this, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank Nancy and Gordon Fry for their contribution to today's show. Good stuff. And thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week with Living in Oblivion. Stay healthy. Bye.
They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Multi-pass. Leave it at multi-pass. You know it's multi-pass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. 